0: Today's text is from Mark 10:28 through 31. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children in fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are the first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. I'm Sergio. Thank you so much for coming today and just, yeah, what a pleasure it is to just share with you guys the word. If you can, if you're holding a physical Bible, I would love for you just to have a finger always in Mark 9 and Mark 10, as I will be jumping around in that section a little bit today for our text today. And so for our time, actually, I'm really going to zero in on this saying that Jesus has at the very end of the scripture of today, which reads, but, the, but many who are first, will be last, and the last, first. This little saying, I believe Jesus gives to us for us to sit as disciples and meditate on. Mike, last time, shared from this passage about how we enter into the kingdom. Today, what I want to do with this passage is to talk about what it means to be in the kingdom what does it mean for us as disciples to be in the kingdom and to do that today i want to first start talking about a super spreader then the problem of being first why we shouldn't grow up and finally what to do when we get jesus juked yeah jesus juked it's a it's a real thing It was the end of 2020, the height of the pandemic. I remember it was around late October and it was my son's birthday. And it's really always something kind of sweet celebrating a child as young as my son. He was about six, just turned seven at the time. It's always really nice because children don't care what's going on. What they want on their birthdays, they want the food they want the presents, and they want the cake, right? It's always about the cake at the end. And it was great because my wife is in the back putting candles on the cake, lighting it, and as she's doing that, I'm just staring at my son, just just soaking in his smile just a moment, and I see him sneeze and cough. And you know, like, I don't know if you've ever had those moments in life where subconsciously you begin to realize something, but yet consciously it hasn't come to you. You kind of just feel it in your body first, and I just started feeling it, like something, something's wrong. As I'm just looking at him, it's, my mind is beginning to race and think about the event that's about to happen, and as my wife lays the cake right in front of him and as we're singing the traditional happy birthday song, I just start thinking more and more deeply, just staring more and more intensely at him until it just just clicks. If you guys remember back in those days, we were inundated with graphs, charts, of heat dispersion, how far breath travels, where particles go, how long they live on surfaces. It was like this crash course of microbiology that we just gained just soaked in every single week. And I'm watching my son about to blow out candles on this cake. And if you could just picture here for a minute, when children blow out candles, yeah, they... They don't have that professional like that that quick one that tries to glide over the edge. They're more concerned about just blowing it out. And so all their inertia and power is blown right on top of that cake. And I gotta tell you, I didn't need a microscope to see the particles. And we're just cutting this thing up and we're just serving it up to everybody else. I'm like, geez, everyone now is just getting cake and COVID and this super spreader event happening right now in my house. And it's funny, right? It's funny to, to have moments like that, right? If you guys have a birthday coming up, I'm, I'm sorry. Or you're welcome. It's funny, though, because when we have these experiences where we see culturally important things... Especially when we think about a young child, their their birthday, their life. It's funny because we see these same things happening over and over again. We have the same expectations and thoughts that wash over events like this. And yet, with new information, knowledge, or even a, a global pandemic, can just reverse the whole thing. How in those moments even can feel a bit disorienting because how that one bit of knowledge can change that view of reality right there. And I share that because that's exactly where we find the disciples in this context. You know, the way actually Mark arranges this book, they spend the first eight chapters actually just in one place in Galilee. And then from chapters 11 to 16 in Jerusalem. And if you remember, they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Where Jesus was going to die and resurrect. And where we find ourselves in this story is what many would call the the nerve center of Mark. From the end of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10 where they're on this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And these disciples have an expectation. I mean, they're they're Jewish people, so they know around this time, they know what to expect from the celebration of Passover. It's an important cultural event for them that happens over and over again. And now with Jesus with them, they even have upped the expectation they're thinking, man, this guy, now Jesus with us, this is a culmination of the time that we've now had with him. That now we're gonna start pushing back and resisting against the oppression that we've been feeling. And that Jesus was going to begin to change all of that. So where we find ourselves actually in the text is a conversation that they've been having about greatness, if you guys remember. And they're so concerned with greatness because of their perception of what they think is going to happen in this ritual tradition. But the thing is, what's also happening within this conversation is that Jesus is telling them three separate times what he's going to do. He's giving them new information and knowledge of what the Passover actually really points to. And you could sense that in the conversation, it's feeling a little bit disorienting for them because they are thinking one thing, but Jesus is saying another thing. The first time that Jesus shares this, Mark in his normal style kinda just moves along with the story. But here where we find ourselves in the text is between the second and the third time that Jesus tells them like, hey, uh, I'm gonna have to do these kinds of, you know, like the Easter thing from last week. I'm gonna have to die to come back again for you. And you can tell that this seems to be a very important part in the book of Mark because the story really begins to slow down in this conversation about what Jesus is about to do. And just like candles on a cake, given some new information to see reality differently, Jesus is going to share with them something that's going to be so new that they'll never be able to see the celebration again in the same way. And in fact, what Jesus shares here is so important that this little phrase, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, happens at the beginning of the conversation as it happens at the end. As if what Jesus shares with them in this little picture before they're about to experience the Passover in this new way that is important for them to hold on to as disciples of Christ. So, what did Jesus want them to see about the discipleship to him that they were having a hard time seeing? That is the problem of being first. The problem of being first. It was weird because as I was writing this message physically with my hands, It was weird just writing it down, because I personally, I love being first. In fact, as a kid, I remember growing up, our treat meal every once in a while was to go to Hometown Buffet. You guys remember Hometown Buffet? Yeah, that's where it was at when I was growing up. And one of my favorite places to go to for Hometown Buffet was every once in a while they would have rib night. And when it was rib night, you want to be the first ones when that platter drops. Because when it's rib night and you have the first and you're the first one, you get first dibs. Right? You get the fatty piece of meat that usually happens to always be at the very bottom. Right? And as the line goes through, that crappy small little piece is just full of fat that maybe has like a little tiny piece of meat on it, always happens to make its way to the bottom. So you never want to be last, you want to be first. You want to be the very first in line to get that delicious succulent meat. But that doesn't just happen on a buffet line, it happens to us all throughout our lives. And it starts at a really, really young age when we're in school, of being first. Everyone is trying to succeed, get good grades. When you get to high school, we begin to slap titles on there, like Valedictorian, in college, summa cum laude. When we apply for our jobs, it's this humble brag that happens on our paper about why this person should hire us. In fact, like, even like, with one of the most common questions that gets asked in a job interview, like what is one of your greatest weaknesses, right? We approach that question like, you know, you know I, I just, my problem is I work too hard. I am just so goal-oriented that once I start a project, I just can't stop. I'm just so focused. You know, those are the kinds of answers that we give but that isn't the truth. For example, I think some of us would probably say something along the lines of like, I love that like mid-afternoon nap. You know I'm talking about? Like around like two, three o'clock, you had a lunch meeting or maybe after a Zoom call and you're like, oh man. And you're like, oh man, I love to take a nap. But you take a nap. And then after you wake up like at three, four o'clock, the problem actually is starting something new. And that's the weakness. Most of us are like, nah, I don't want to do that. But we would never share that in a job interview. Right, because we don't get integrity points for being honest about our emotional health or our physical well-being. We'll get our job because of that firstness, why we deserve that interview in the first place. And that's firstness in our day as it was then. They're values. Values built in abilities, accomplishments, and knowledge. And these seen on display as early as kids in a buffet line to the 20, 30 times you're going to have to whiteboard for an interview to show them all of this knowledge and accomplishments and abilities that you have. And don't get me wrong, again, I love firstness. I love going on Yelp. I love checking out that amazing new Japanese restaurant down the street. I love all those things. And yet, and yet, from the text right above that Mike preached a few weeks ago on the rich young ruler, firstness is a big problem. The rich young ruler, rich, he's young and he's a ruler. Right there, right? Power, money, influence. He's got it all. In fact, in the text it also says, he never lied, cheated, or stole. In fact, he was nice to his mom and dad. Seems like the perfect bachelor contestant. (laughs) Right? He seems like, I mean, to be honest, I would love to be a friend with a guy like that. His disciples thought pretty highly of him. And actually, so did Jesus. In fact, it says here in verse 21, it says Jesus felt a love for him. He felt a love for him. Jesus really wanted this guy to follow him, to be with him. And you can tell by the clarity of answer that's given. He says, one thing you lack Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away sad because he had a lot of stuff. Now, the mistake would be, as we read this and think about this text, to think that all I have to do is give up more of my stuff. That all I have to do is just begin to give some of my money away here and there. And I could just follow Jesus by just giving up something. But to do that, the issue of firstness would still be at hand. So what exactly then is the problem Of being first. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his amazing book, Cost of Discipleship, he said, if a drunkard signs the pledge or a rich man gives up all his money away, they are both of them freeing themselves from the slavery of alcohol and riches, but not from their bondage to themselves." In other words, what Dietrich is saying is that the problem is us. We accumulate talents, abilities, and accomplishments done because we place ourselves as firsts. Our whole lives is driven by us being first. And we work our whole lives doing that. And it is from that over and over repetitiveness of culture inculcating this into our minds, we now push that value not just on ourselves, but onto other people as we relate to them. And in particular, even with our relationships with God. We will project our accomplishments, our achievements, all on these relationships without us even knowing that that's what we are doing. Think about the people that we associate with, for example. When you meet someone new for the first time, we usually have culturally a a set of questions we like to ask. We go, hi, right, so you're not rude. How are you? to make it seem like I care. <laughs> and then when we say, what do you do? And immediately, as that person begins to share what they do, we have already in our minds most likely created a value structure. And at that point, we begin to assess this person in front of us. So for example, if you are currently just dying to work for a large company like Google or Apple, and that new person that you just met was head of HR, right, I'm sure that the conversation wouldn't go like, oh, sweet, thanks, and you just walk away. Because of our value structure of firstness, we begin to entertain the conversation anymore. We begin to treat and value and associate with this person far differently than somebody who does not fit into the value structure that we have of what we need and what we want or what we desire. And we just do it so quickly in our subconscious levels that it even impacts our own relationships with God and our discipleship to him. And we approach God as if we can use our accomplishments our achievements, to almost barter with God the things that we want done. As if, God, you know, I have this friend who is sick, or God, you know, I would really love that job, so if you give me that job, Lord, instead of giving you my normal 7% or 2%, I'll give you like 15% for the next three months. If you can help me get this job right here, or this dream home off the coast of this location, as if the accomplishments that we have developed we could just offer to God, as if we could just negotiate and barter with him in that way. And as one Quaker writer put it, as he describes this, from, and this is from a book, from Robert Mulholland's book, Invitation to a Journey, another great book. He says, we are well-educated people who have been schooled in a way of knowing that treats the world as an object to be dissected and to be manipulated. A way of knowing that gives us power over the world, we, use, we have used our knowledge to derange the world, to satisfy our drive for power, distorting and deranging life, rather than loving it for the gift that it is. The problem of firstness is a huge problem. And I'll admit that it is a very difficult one. And I think the disciples in verse 26 understood this astonished, looking at someone who they would have thought as a model disciple walk away sad. And you could tell by the response because they're like, who then could be saved? And Jesus' response to them is, with people it is impossible, but not with God. So where does this leave us as those wanting to or willing to be disciples of Jesus? Where does that leave us as we're thinking and reflecting on this? I think this leaves the important point of why we shouldn't grow up. Now I'm not saying that we avoid adulting as much as possible that we live in our never-never lands here in San Francisco, that we come here, we just enjoy life as much as we can and, and go back home whenever we're ready to go back home to. That's not, I think, what Mark is saying here in this passage where he's asking us not to grow up. It's not a, a maturity thing. Mark, in 1024, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he calls them Children. Calls them children. Now, Mark uses this word now for the third time, meaning that as he's talking and calling them children, he's using this as a narrative cue because he wants us to go back and to think about when was the last time he used children because that's kind of off as you're reading this text. He's calling them children, and both times he talks about children as a model to discipleship. How to be a disciple in the kingdom. He says you have to receive one and you have to be one. You have to be a child. And that's what it means to not to grow up. So what does it mean then to be a child? What is Jesus saying when he calls us to be children in the kingdom as our beginning points of discipleship? With him, I think when we hear this, it's kind of nice. It's kind of like a like almost like endearing, like our Instagram pages when you see a little baby child in some posts. It's kind of cute, kind of sweet. And the only thing that can intensify that more is they somehow manage to put a puppy or a kitty or all three all in the same picture, right? It's kind of warm. It feels nice. But in that culture and in that time, children. We're seeing at the very tippy bottom, that's a phrase, of society. They were the lasts. They were the leasts. And what Jesus is saying is he's bringing the least in front of them and say, be like them. Now, the reason why they were the least is because children, especially from zero to age five, six, They had no accomplishments, abilities. They haven't learned a skill yet to be useful in that society. In fact, in Greco-Roman world back then, children were seen more like property. Slaves had more rights than children. Children often were discarded, treated at the very bottom And what Jesus is saying is he wants us to be like that child. He wants us to be like the least of these. You know, I have actually a daughter who's about five to six years old. She's going to turn six this year. You know, it's kind of neat watching a child at that age because they have this crazy imagination. It's almost as if whatever they imagine in their minds, they could just project out into reality. And they can live within that projection. It's just always awesome. And one of the things she's really into right now is cats, or she would put it kitties. She loves kitties. She has stuffed kitties. She watches shows with kitties. In fact, her favorite game is to play kitties. And she always wants me to play kitties with her. Now, what is kitties? Kitties is pretty much exactly what you imagine in your mind. It's us, me as an adult, her as a child, mimicking cats. And we're talking to each other, you know, doing little cat things, you know, meowing, hissing, right? Rolling around. But the play actually doesn't last, it usually doesn't last very long, because I break out a character way too fast for kitties to keep going. Because accordingly to her, to Joy, I'm not a very good cat. <laughs> and so the play just doesn't last long. And she always tells me, like, Audrey, who's my oldest, oh, she plays so much better. Why can't you be more like Audrey playing kitties, as if she's trying to like give a little dig at me? to get better at playing kitties. But it's funny, because even when the game ends, the play doesn't. She'll say, well, what can we do next? And she'll bring out Uno cards, she'll bring out dolls. In fact, when she's doing things, like being on an iPad and, of course, watching Frozen, she just wants to be next to me. When she eats, she wants me to always sit at the table when she goes to sleep at night, she wants me to lay next to her. And when she wakes up in the morning, the first person she wants to see is usually myself or my wife. You know, it's interesting because with a, with a little child like that, they're so dependent on you for everything. For the food, to the clothes, to the rides. And yet, she's not next to me for any of those things. She's just next to me simply for who I am, her dad. She just wants to be around me because it's me, not because I offer her amazing kitty play, obviously, or anything that could contribute with my accomplishments. In fact, my accomplishments means very little to her. She just wants to be with me. And she just enjoys being with me and that that presence is enough and that presence trickles out into everything else she does. And that's exactly what Jesus means when he says to be my disciple is to be like a child, just like a little joy. Meaning just like a little child, it doesn't matter the accomplishments or any of that with Jesus. It's just the desire to be present with him and just to simply delight in who he is. That the beginning points of all of our discipleship happen when we learn just to, like a child, be present with God. To learn to just daily delight in who he is. Not what he does, what he can do, what he will do, but just simply like a child for the fact of who he is. But essentially because Jesus here, as he's talking about us being model disciples and using a little child to be that model, he doesn't stop there. It says in Mark 37, it says, whoever receives me like a child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but receives him who sent me. And it seems like in one sentence Jesus is correlating that as we receive him like a child that we are also to receive children as well, which means the least of these. And I know that the way we typically interpret this is to say to serve them, which is true. We are to serve the least of these. But I think Jesus actually means something a little bit more because he uses children and being as the example of And I think actually what Jesus is saying is that we are with Jesus as children, that we should also be with the least of these. Which that takes me to the time that I got Jesus duped. Yeah, and how we should respond when these moments happen in our lives. It was my second to last year of seminary, and I'm sitting you know very seminary like book i got this book on revelation just sitting right in front of me in a coffee shop by myself in a corner outside in a nice warm southern california day it's awesome because at home at the time i had a 5 year old and a 2 year old and i got i got to tell you no one's getting any work done at home when you got those two ages at home there's no studying going on there's always a constant disruption you want to play kitties with me <laughs> And as much as I want to play kitties, you know, when I got a final coming up, don't really want to play kitties. So I'm here in this coffee shop just drinking my coffee, and out from the corner of my eye, I see an unhoused gentleman making a beeline right to me. And as I turn and confirm, and he just comes straight at me before he could say anything to me, I say, hi, how are you? I was like, do you want a cup of coffee? And he's like, yeah, I would love one. And he sits right down in front of me. And I was like, great. And so I bring him his cup of coffee, thinking that our time would kind of end. And he's like, oh, I, I noticed that you're a Christian. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm going to seminary right now, and I'm, and I'm studying for this test and uh, trying to be a pastor. And he's like, oh. And now... Little like inside baseball. When you're a pastor and you hear that, oh, that pretty much dictates where this conversation is gonna go. (laughs) If you hear the, oh, it's like, oh, thank you. Picks up, you know, that would be the, but the, oh, high pitched one (laughs) is like this excitement. Like, I have all these questions about dinosaurs. And I don't see him in the Bible, but maybe you can help me figure this thing out here. So I thought it was gonna be one of those. But he sits down and from his back pocket, he pulls out this black, paper-bound, worn-out, marked-up Bible, and places it in front of me. And he's like, hey, pastor, why don't you pull out your Bible? I was like, oh, okay. So from my bag, I pull out my nice, hide goat skin Bible from my bag, clean, pristine, just like this one right here. And I place it right in front of me, and he's like, hey, let's do a Bible study. <laughs> I was like, okay, do a Bible study today. And he opens up to the book of Job. And we just start talking for 15 minutes, except he's doing most all the talking. And it was interesting because I have never had that experience after telling someone I'm a pastor. I've never never had that experience before. And yet, here he was just talking to me about this book. And it was interesting because he was just sharing with me how deep this book had marked him and impacted him in his life, sharing with me as he was reading. And then our conversation kind of closes out And he shares with me, hey, you know, uh, the reason why I actually really came up to you the first time is because you looked real alone and sad in the corner by yourself. I was like, okay. I guess maybe if I'm reading Revelation, I guess maybe I would be. He's like, actually, you know, I was actually, I came up here actually to share with you about Jesus, but you already knew him. So I just thought we would just talk Bible together. And it was really cool because I don't remember everything we talked about that day. But I remember two things that really marked me to this day. One is one thing that he's a phrase that he had said to me at the very end as he got up to go. He said, you know, I don't know exactly where I'll be today. But I know where I'll be tomorrow. So I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. And the second is how I felt in that moment, what I felt. And what I felt is I felt Jesus-juked. Jesus-juked is that moment in our relationships with God where you feel like you're going to do something. Like, I'm going to help this guy out by buying him coffee. And yet Jesus-juked is the moment where you realize that that encounter isn't for him but it's for you. And what I did in that very moment is I became a first to him. I thought that my knowledge of the Bible, my accomplishments, like my pristine, fine-tuned hair that I make sure is pinpoint every day, all of those things mattered in that moment. I was a first in that interaction. And I cut him off by just giving him some coffee as if he needed it. But what this passage reminds me when we think about firsts being lasts and lasts being first is that actually how important those that we view as least are not just people that we help, but vital to our discipleship of Jesus. They somehow understand biblical truths in the Bible in ways that many times are just hard for me to grasp. They understand and trust God at levels that it's hard for me at times to get to, and yet, they so easily access that. And what I always think about when I read this passage is how often Jesus would just sit with tax collectors with just different kinds of lasts in that world just to be with them and just to enjoy the gift that they are and the value that they bring to the kingdom. I guess I just want to end by asking the question, do we really view those that are lasts as real firsts that are important to be with as Jesus did? Are we more concerned about being being firsts in our lives? and understanding the value that those that are lasts are really firsts and how we just need to learn to sit with them, learn from them, and value them as amazing people within this community, as contributors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the first of firsts, Lord God. You came as the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. And you made it your joy, Lord God, to come, not in your interest, but in ours. And you took your firstness and emptied it out to the point of being a servant, a least, and serving us to the point that you hung on a cross among the lasts of the day and sacrificed your own life for us. And that you, Lord, were raised from the last and into the kingdom of God became the first among all firsts. The first among the dead who poured out the life, your life, so that we could be first in the kingdom to come. So Lord, help us to embrace what it means to just be with you, to just enjoy being with you as a gift and those around us, Lord God, that you send our way as a blessing, as a value to the kingdom that you have brought now and forevermore, amen.